0: um welcome to another episode of the and hour i'm your host adam fitzgerald with me today is brett eagleson brett eagleson is the son of the late john bruce eagleson who worked for westfield management corporation on the 17th floor of the south tower of the world trade center who perished on september 11 2001. brett eagleson is currently the ceo of 9-11 justice a grassroots movement made up of the 9-11 community which consists of 9-11 survivors First responders, family members of the lost, and all volunteers and Lower Manhattan residents, students, and workers who are now suffering fatal illnesses due to their exposure to Ground Zero. Today, Brett and other 9/11 victim family members have hired law firms, Motley Rice and Credlin Creedler, to push a civil litigation case against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for their role in having Saudi operatives give logistical and financial support to two known Al Qaeda operatives while living inside the United States. Khalid Al-Badar and hazmi and later a few others, which has now been acknowledged through the 2023 Donald Camden's trail files and through the FBI Encore files, which were declassified in 2021. Brett, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank you for your um, persistence on this story. I know it's a, it's a long-fought legal battle, and I know you've been on this for a long time. I've... I've went back and, and saw some of the reporting and uh, uh, the the work that you've done on on our behalf over all the years. So thank you. And and it's about time that you and I sat down together and talked because I've seen a lot of your work.
0: Oh, I thank you very much for that. But uh, it pales in comparison to some others. But I want to get people to know who you are and who your father was. So I'll, I'll start out very simply. Where were you born, Brett? And how was your whole life growing up?
1: Sure. So I was born in Connecticut, born and raised uh, in rural Connecticut. Um, My dad was working for a company called Westfield. Westfield is, it's no longer, uh, Westfield was a company that owned and managed malls all throughout the world. Um, Westfield recently, a few years ago, was bought out by a European competitor. Um, But prior to 2001, my dad was uh, a vice president uh, for Westfield Management Company. They had, um, I believe, eight or nine malls on the East Coast of the United States that fell within his jurisdiction. So he managed all those malls um, and he was really proud of his job. Uh, His job was very important to him. Uh, He rose up through the ranks. Uh, He started off in the retail business as uh, a general manager of the sporting goods section in a local Kmart. Uh, And then he went on to become a manager of one of the Westfield malls in Connecticut. And then he was promoted to regional vice president, where he oversaw all the operations on the uh, East Coast of the United States. Um, in 2001, uh, the the uh, Port Authority, uh, which owns the World World Trade Center complex, entered into a lease with Silverstein Properties. It was a 99 year lease, and Silverstein and the deal of the lease was that Silverstein got to run. 99% of the World Trade Center complex. So at the time, that was buildings one, two, three, four, and five, I believe. Um, and that that most of that lease, the Silverstein lease, was all the office space. There was within the World Trade Center complex retail space. So if anyone listening had ever been to Lower Manhattan prior to 9/11, and even to this day, there's a subway station. There was a subway station beneath the two towers called Fulton Station. Mm-hmm. The station was surrounded by a bunch of retail. There was an underground subterranean mall. That space was about 1% of the total World Trade Center complex. Westfield entered into partnership with Silverstein to control and manage that space. So that space was an old, dingy, dilapidated mall that lacked attention and lacked any kind of real significant investment. Westfield saw that as an opportunity. They wanted to make the World Trade Center mall their flagship mall on the East Coast. And because of that, they wanted my dad on site and on premises during that renovation. Westfield was prepared to invest um, uh, millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars into uh, the rehabilitation and the expansion of this subterranean mall. Again, they had just inherited this lease uh, through their deal with the Port Authority and Silverstein Properties. Um, that is why my dad was there. It was a temporary assignment. Westfield wanted him on the scene. Um, they had rented some uh, space on the 17th floor of the South Tower because, as you might imagine, to run a mall and to, to run the East Coast operations and to run the renovation project, um, you, you would need an office uh, location to run your operations out of. So they couldn't do that in the mall itself. So Westfield had some offices on the 17th floor. The South Tower of the World Trade Center. And the deal was is that my dad uh, would commute from Connecticut into New York City on Mondays and he would stay until Thursday. He'd come home on Thursday afternoons and they gave him Friday offs. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he was with us here in Connecticut. But Monday through Thursday, he was in New York City. It was supposed to be a six month um, project. And it was nearing the end of that project actually when 9 11 happened. And, um, uh, you know, on the day that uh, the planes at the tower, so on 9-11, um, I remember I received a, um, I was in, it was in high school actually, and it was in between our first period and second period of the day, and the principal came on and made an announcement and instructed us all to go to our homerooms at the time when we were notified that the uh, um, World Trade Center building had been hit by a plane, and, and my initial thought was, oh, geez, I hope the pilot's okay, Right. I thought it was one of these planes that these little Cessnas or a prop plane with, a, you know, maybe a rookie pilot or, or some kind of like a non-commercial type private plane that flew into the World Trade Center. And then the report started, you know, and then as more details arose and as the principal kept speaking, I realized that, no, this is no, you know, Cessna. This is, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, th- this is very serious. And um, again, I was from rural Connecticut. So not a lot of people um, around me had anybody that was working in New York City at the time. And in fact, I was the only one in any of the surrounding towns that actually had a family member in the World Trade Center. So it was much different from being from uh, northern New Jersey or Fairfield or even in New York. I I felt that I, I was actually the only person around that actually had anybody in I had a loved one in the towers that day. So um, I went to the office, I tried to get a hold of my mom, and my mom had told me that don't worry, um, your older brother, so my older brother, Kyle, had spoken to my dad, and this was um, on, on his cell phone, and this was after both planes had hit the towers. And the message back from my dad to my brother Kyle was that he was okay, he had survived the impact of, of both plane attacks. Member, he was only on the 17th floor of the South Tower, so there was a lot of distance between him and that impact zone. Um, but he had told my brother that he was gonna uh, stay back and help with the evacuation efforts. And my brother had said that it sounded like pandemonium in the background. There was people screaming and uh, there was lots of sh- shouting and yelling. But my dad was, his voice was very cool, calm, and collected. And my brother had pleaded with him to just please, like just, you know, they're saying on TV that these buildings aren't safe. Just please get out. So my dad said that he would do what he had to do. And then he himself was going to get out of the building.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, it wasn't until much later that, that we found out that um, through speaking to some of his former colleagues, that uh, my dad and his Westfield colleagues were in the lobby of the South Tower and they were making their way out of the building and my dad had turned around and witnessed a lot of the chaos that was ensuing. He, and one thing that was very clear to him, and it's been made clear in the 9-11 commission report, is that communication was a major issue. So the firefighters on the, on the lobby were having a really hard time communicating with the firefighters on the you know, 80th, 90th floor, NYPD. Nobody could talk to each other. Cell phones were jammed. They weren't working. Radios weren't working. So my dad had, had the idea, because he was in the mall management business, it had a box of those portable two-way radios, and um, you know those radios that that maintenance staff uses to communicate with with each other. So he told all of his colleagues, he says, "You guys got out of the building. I'm going to go back up to the 17th. I'm going to grab the I'm going to grab the box of radios, and I'm going to distribute them to um, the 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 FDNY uh, uh, here down in the lobby." And he he told his colleagues that he was going to just make sure that the stairwell was clear, make sure there's nobody stuck on the 17th. Maybe someone. would. Someone was in a wheelchair, or fell or gotten hurt. So he went up to just make sure that the floor was clear and that there was nobody that needed help. But the ultimate goal was to get the box at radios. And um, th- that's the last that we knew. That's the last that anybody that we've heard or we've known had contact or communication with him. So at some point along that path back up to the 17th, that's when the South Tower fell. Remember, the South Tower was was the first one to fall. So he, um, we don't know if he ever made it to the 17th, did he ever make it back down? Um, and, and and we've never recovered him.
0: Uh, just to uh, add to um, the Silverstein property uh, winning the, the bid in uh, January of 2001, very few people know about this, uh, that Silverstein Properties was actually outbid by approximately $30 million from Bornaldo Realty on behalf of Brookfield Properties, but um, they withdrew in March over uh discrepancies in the contract, and that's how Silverstein Properties had won the bid. Um, what, you know, I want people to know about your father, uh, more so. Um, so what was John Bruce Eagleson like? What was he like growing up?
1: Oh, he was a great dad. He um he he you know, as I said, he loved his job. Uh he was really proud of his job. Um, so for him, uh he was very I think proud of of being able to work in the World Trade Center, being able to work for Westfield, having all those malls under his jurisdiction. You know, he, you know, my both my parents came from very humble means. So, um, you know, my dad had had a job that um, I know that he was proud of, I know his parents would have been proud of. Um, although he was a busy person, um, you know, managing a retail portfolio like that does require a lot of time and and effort and attention. He made. a point to uh, still be a good father. Uh, He coached all my brothers. Um, He coached every one of us. I have two older brothers. Mm -hmm. He coached me in soccer, basketball, and baseball and did the same for my two older brothers. We uh, spent a lot of time uh, outdoors. He was an outdoors person. Uh, We played golf together, fishing, um, uh, and uh, we spent a lot of time up north in, in New Hampshire on family vacation so he was a person who was devoted to his job loyal to his job proud of his job but he also was very proud and devoted and loyal to his family and he made it he made it um a point of his to spend a lot of time with us
0: before september 11 2001 did you yourself have long-term goals and after the events took place were those goals changed well, before on
1: September eleventh, two thousand one, I was fifteen. Um, I had always thought that I wanted to be in the business world. But at fifteen years old, what does that even really mean? And you know, I was, would see the way that my dad would interact with a lot of people that, that he worked with, and I I idolized him and I thought that I want to do something like that. <laughs> um, mm. I wanna I wanna be in his you know, I wanna I want people to look up to me the way that that they looked up to him. I want to be a role model for people, like he was a role model um, for his colleagues. Um, after 9/11 happened, you know, I we were just our family was devastated. You know, my, my middle brother joined the army. You know, he was already in the he was already on the way to becoming um, a, an officer. He was in the ROTC program, which is a program through the university system where um, uh, college students take uh, army related courses, and while they're students. They go away uh, I believe it's uh, one week in a month and for two weeks a year that they, they learn you know the o- um, roles of what it's like to be an officer so so my brother Tim was was already in that program um, and he I think after 9/11 happened he, you know there there was probably times and Tim's college career path that, that he questioned whether or not he wanted to pursue or continue to be go into the Army. And I think after 9-11 happened, there was no doubt about that. and um, uh, After 9-11 happened, he uh, made it a point to become an Army Ranger, uh, and he wanted to do as much as he could to excel uh, within the United States Army. He, he ultimately became a captain, um, and he was uh, went through Ranger School and he earned all the tabs and different um, honors that that one could award. He went to Iraq twice and received two bronze stars. So I, I know that 911 um, furthered his desire to be in the US Army, although we you know, and then if you talk to him today, you know he'll tell you that he will agree with with a lot of us that the war in Iraq was a disaster.
0: Right.
1: And uh, the war in Iraq probably was not needed. The war in Iraq was a distraction uh iraq never had weapons of mass destruction iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 at the time and i know i'm kind of getting down a side tangent here but but it's kind of sort of where the conversation is leading to is the war in iraq and and um you know so i mean we can talk more about that and kind of the failures of that iraq war but um uh as far as me after 9-11 i was just focusing on putting one foot in front of the other um finishing college trying to get good grades i knew what i want i knew that I just, whatever I did, I wanted to make my dad proud. And um, I think that at the time I thought, well, getting into a good school, you know, being, being uh, a good student and getting into college and getting, landing a career is what exactly my dad would want me to do. So that, that's what I focused on, kind of put 9-11, I blocked it out and really th- didn't think about it. I kind of suppressed it. I, I wanted to be a normal 15 year old boy. So, you know, I watched the New England Patriots and the Boston Red Sox and focused on girls and uh, graduating high school and hung out a lot with friends.
0: And as that time was progressed, you've had we've had two congressional inquiries uh, and we've had a number of issues brought up with the national and international media about the events of September 11, 2001. And we've had a lot of cover up. Um many of the questions by the 911 Jersey widows had went unanswered uh did you ever keep close eye on the congressional inquiries or did you basically just take whatever you could and and didn't really pay much attention or were you focused on them?
1: So it wasn't until 2016 when I became active in um, 9/11 family advocacy um I like I said I I focused on Getting into college, graduating college, landing a career. But at the time, um, in 2016, I was in a good spot with myself. You know, with my family, I had a I had a fiance at the time, I had a house of my own, I had a career, um, and and I had some free time. This is before we had kids, and and I started to read a little bit more. I started to look back onto you know what really happened on 9/11. I never fully bought. The idea or the official narrative that 19 hijackers with no knowledge of English, no money, no knowledge of how to fly a plane, um, no experience in Western culture were somehow able to to band together and pull off the most devastating and consequential attack in U.S. history on American soil with no help from anybody. That never sat well with me, um, but it's something that I just sort of swallowed and lived with. And, you know, I, I thought that the government would tell us the truth. I thought that the government would never lie to you. I thought the government would be honest with us, especially the 9-11 communities, you know, our, you know some of the nation's biggest, biggest um, uh, grieved people, you know, our, you know, our nation's most victimized group of people. I thought that the government would be compassionate and, and truthful. I didn't I didn't learn about any of the cover up really, until I started to get involved in 2016. The reason I got involved in 2016 was I remember I came home um, from work one day and there was a letter from a law firm saying that we need all hands on deck. Um, We need family members to lobby Congress to help us pass this law called JASTA, which stands for the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And apparently, behind the scenes for, for a decade, uh, law firms who represented my family had been trying to sue the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But the, but the judge had recently dismissed that lawsuit on jurisdictional grounds, saying that United States um, citizens do not have jurisdiction to sue a foreign sovereign because of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And what JASTA did was it created a loophole within the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act which would allow a U.S. citizen to sue a foreign sovereign that's not on the state sponsors of terrorism list if that foreign sovereign, if there was evidence or if there was a supposition that that foreign sovereign had killed Americans on American soil. JASTA was a narrowly tailored uh, fix to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and it allowed people, it allowed us to sue the kingdom of Saudi Arabia even though the kingdom was not on the state sponsor of terrorism list. Now that law uh, took about five years to pass. There were people fighting for that law. I think it's back as early as 2012, and the law didn't pass until 2016. So about four years it took. Mm-hmm. I came on during the very kind of the, kind of the middle to end portion of that. I was on in early 2000, late 2015, early 2016, I should say, and. Um, what I wanted to do is I was like, finally, here's, here's, here's a way for me to be involved. Here's a way for me to learn more. Here's a way for me to actually contribute. Um, and I said, the one thing I can do to honor my dad is I could try to get my local US House representative to co-sponsor this bill because that's what the law firms were asking us to do. They were asking us to find co-sponsors. So I reached out to um, my US representative, Rosa Delora um, and I asked her office to co-sponsor this bill. Of course, you know they—they they had no idea what it was. Um, you know, we are from not—we're not—we are from Connecticut, but we're from kind of we're a bit removed from the city, so it's not like we were one of these representatives that was probably—it's not like her office was getting hammered um, by family members because we were her one constituent in the mm-hmm. whole district. I believe we were her one. Maybe there was another one. It was a while ago. I can't remember, but um, we were her one and only, or one of two constituents. So we had to educate them and we had to, you know, walk them through uh, what our allegations were, walk them through uh, the facts and evidence that we had on on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11. And sure enough, they they became a co-sponsor. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, that sort of lit a fire within me, like a fire within my belly to say, gee, well, if I can get Rosa DeLore to co-sponsor, why can't I go around to every U.S. House member in the state of Connecticut and use the model that I used to get Rosa on to get these other members. So then that was my goal. So I started with the modest goal of getting one co-sponsor and I ended up getting all five U S house members from Connecticut to co-sponsor this legislation that caught the attention of Senator Blumenthal who on the Senate side was already pushing for this law. So his office had reached out to me and said, how did you do it? What did you do? (laughs) You know, what, you know, what is your secret? What's your strategy? Um, so I, I met the senator in 2016. We held a couple of press conferences, and it's been a great relationship ever since then. Uh, the senator and I have been working together, pushing for transparency, pushing for accountability, and, and pushing uh, to educate the American public more broadly on what we now know uh, the, the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia did to support the 9-11 hijackers.
0: So... Right here from this starting point, you become much more active than you ever thought you would be. So when did the idea of 9-11 justice come about? And what was the overall primary goal for making this group? 9-11
1: Justice should have been formed a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um we we uh just never had the organizational structure. We never had the time. We never had the expertise to fight, to create a 501 C organization. Um, it wasn't until um, believe it or not, it wasn't until the Saudi or the live, I should say live PGA golf controversy. Mm. That is what ultimately forced us to register as a 501 entity. And um It it was through my outreach to the PGA. I had reached out to the PGA in the spring of 2022. I introduced myself. I basically cold called them. I cold emailed them. I explained who I was. I pointed to some press that I had done and some media. So they so they knew I was a legitimate person. I wasn't some, you know, crazy person or conspiracy person. It's conspiracy theorist. you know, I, I told them that I met with former President Trump. I told them that I work with FBI agents, former FBI agents, rather. I told them that I work with U.S. senators. And I said, we have a lot to talk about. I said, we have, we share a common enemy. We know a lot about your new enemy of the kingdom. And I said, I think that there's a lot that could be um, had. I think there's a lot that could come of a beneficial, a mutually beneficial relationship between the 9-11 families and the PGA Tour. And they, they responded uh, very aggressively to that email. They were very happy that we reached out. They actually called me back within 24 hours. And they set me up um, with uh, on a Zoom call later that day after we had talked in, in the morning and they introduced me to their third party vendor, Clout. Clout is a PR firm that the PGA Tour had already hired and was already engaged with. And Clout was helping the PGA Tour with their PR battle and their public battle against the kingdom. So it was, um, it was through Clout. Um, it was Clout's recommendation that that we form a 501C because Clout says, how could you guys not do this? How could you have not done this? And I said, well, I said, you know, we're just a bunch of regular <laughs> people. We don't have expertise in, in 501C organizations and, and you know, lobbying or kind of like any of that stuff. We're, we're just a bunch of family members that that, that want truth and, and transparency. And yes, we've been to Congress and we've passed laws, but we're not actually as organized or well-funded as you think we may be. So clout, it was really clout that encouraged me to file a 501c4 or organization, which then allowed us to take donations. It allowed us to raise money. It allowed us to put a, put press statements out under kind of a blanket name of 9-11 justice. Look, like we, we already had the purpose. We already had the people. We already had the email lists. We just needed an official name and a platform where we could, you know, raise money under and we could put press press releases out under. So it was this PGA Live controversy that forced us, in a good way, to organize officially and, and create the 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 company, the, the the entity that is
0: 9/11 Justice. What? Just a follow up to that. You had a lot of people involved with this organization. Did they basically were waiting for a time like this? Did a lot of people come to the organization right away?
1: It's the same folks that have been doing this work since I joined the scene in 2016. Um, we got a lot more people to, to be interested, A lot other a lot of family members to be interested. Once we started getting our name out there more in the media, I've had family members reach out to me through Facebook, through other family members saying, hey, you know, I want to be active. What can I do? I want to come on your trips. I want to go to your protests. Um, Let me know if we have a call to arms where we need to write um, letters or make phone calls to um, members of Congress. So, yes, it did help. But, you know, I would say that the the top 20 most active people were the same people that I've always been dealing with. It's just that we kind of formed under this umbrella corporation, this umbrella name.
0: Okay, now we had the release of the Operation Encore Files, which came under Executive Order 14040 on September 3rd, 2021. And I've read probably three quarters of them in a matter of like six months. And it is loaded with information that answered some of our questions that we had previously, um, which was initially what I've always thought, as well as other experts like uh, Nelson Martins and Paul Thompson and Ken Fenton and Raina Lewiski, Robbie Martin. they we've all basically thought that Saudi intelligence were inside the United States, had received two Al-Qaeda members, Khalid Al-Midar and Wapahadmi in Los Angeles and San Diego. But we just could we didn't have the uh the information that connected. Now we do with Operation Encore to an extent, even though some of the files. Are redacted, what was your response to them?
1: I was shocked. I was actually blown away to see Hmm. that there it is. Actually, what what I think surprised me the most was the lack of media coverage and the lack of uh, attention from the U.S. government. Hmm. Uh, You know, you had senators quiet about this. You had the administration quiet about this. Everything was hush-hush, and I'm I'm scratching my head, and I'm talking to other 9-11 family members, and I'm saying, are you reading what I'm reading? Like, Hmm. am I crazy here? Or did the FBI just come out and say... That Omar El-Bayoumi, the gentleman who found the hijackers' places to live, the gentleman who accepted the hijackers here in the United States, ingratiated them into the community, the same gentleman that signed them up for for bank accounts and signed them up for flight lessons, Omar El-Bayoumi was the hijackers' handler. He made sure that the hijackers had money, a place to live, took their English lessons, and took their flying lessons. Mm -hmm. The FBI now comes out and says Omar al-Bayoumi was working for Saudi intelligence. And that's not, that, that's not a theory. That's not a supposition. That is the FBI saying that's their conclusionary statement based on evidence that the FBI had. And they put this in an analytical level type document. This wasn't some field investigator's notes. This was a summary document. The FBI says Omar al-Bayoumi. I just want that to sink in. Omar El-Bayoumi, the person that was handling the hijackers and signing them up for flight lessons, um, was was making sure that they had money, was making sure that they had a place to live. That same individual, the FBI, our FBI, these are not my words, it's not the family members' words, our own federal bureau investigation has concluded that he was working for Saudi intelligence. And, And I thought to me, you know... That's that's the closest thing to a smoking gun that we're going to get, and and you know I it just it just really bothered me when you read in the media saying you know no smoking gun found no smoking gun found. Well, does anybody actually really think that we're going to find a piece of paper with a note written on it from the king to the hijacker saying go attack America? No, you're never going to get that. You have to put the pieces together, and this is pretty damning, right? I should also point out what. You know, the other information that we found out, not through our FBI, but through um, Scotland Yard and through uh, the Metropolitan Police. Shortly after 9-11, the Metropolitan Police um, uh, uh, raided Bayoumi's flat. So this mm-hmm. gentleman, Bayumi, who I was just talking about, had a flat in Birmingham, England. Uh, they raided his apartment. And they seize thousands of pages of documents. They make copies of all those documents and they give it to the FBI. The FBI claims that they never had any of it. When we asked about those documents, the FBI said that they didn't exist. Well, we ended up getting those documents from the UK police, from from, from the London Metropolitan Police. Mm-hmm. And one of those documents that they seized was a notepad. It kind of looked like this, literally right. like a notepad. Yes. Yes. And on that notepad, this is in Bayoumi's apartment was a sketch of a plane Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and there was an algorithm and the fbi had interviewed an avionics professional i think I, i forget his name now but i can find it for you the fbi had a had a witness statement from an interview of an aviation analyst who was a flight instructor for the u.s navy and they said what is this what does this formula mean to you and the flight instructor turned around and says, geez, he goes, that's a really rudimentary way of how to tell what altitude you need to be at in order to hit a target on the horizon. And it was his guess that, that you could use that equation to fly a plane into a building. And the FBI was given that document, was given that sketch, was given that algorithm that was seized from a raid in Bayumi's apartment in Birmingham, England. And for the longest time, the FBI tried to deny that they did not have that evidence when we asked them about it. So we had to go to the British police and 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 get that material.
0: The employer for Omar al-Bayoumi is the uh Saudi Arabian Presidency of Civil Aviation, or in short, PCA, in which he was an employee since 1975. He was actually hired by Saud al-Rashid, uh who is actually uh, the son of Saud al-Rashid, who actually was on an FBI watch list and actually had a CD-ROM of Rashid's passport next to passports of Abdulaziz al-Ammari, uh, Khalid al-Midar, and I think uh, Salim al-Hazmi, the brother of Nawaf al-Hazmi, on a CD-ROM. This was actually in the Operation Encore Files that I've done a, uh, I did a, a five video expose on which is a read-along. And it goes back to your point. I'm glad you brought up the issue of the notebook because that right there, when I read that, and this is a CBS report I read, I, I, I was flattered. Yeah,
1: yeah, Catherine Catherine Harris from CBS broke that story by the way. Right. Um so that's publicly available. That's publicly sourced. That 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 yeah exactly. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I couldn't believe it. And like you and it doesn't, any of my frustration didn't start with uh, Encore. It started, well, it basically started with Encore, but it ended with Castrell. My, and my next question to you is, just shortly after the release of Castrell, what I thought was the biggest revelation in my studies of nine eleven was the Donald Castrell document from the Office of Military Commissions, which was publicly released in April of this year, which showed that there was a concerted effort. And this is coming from Intelligence officials at the FBI, the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, and also uh, congressional members of the Joint Inquiry 9 Commission, who spoke on conditions of anonymity. However, they all confirmed for, for certain that there was a concerted, illegal covert operation between the CIA, Saudi intelligence, working inside the United States, collecting data on two known, known al-Qaeda operatives, Khalid al midar and hadmi It wasn't that they were following Arab men. They knew these guys were Al-Qaeda because they were tracking them from a Malaysia summit meeting in 2001 until uh, 2000 and 2001. Mm-hmm. And this was all known. And through the Operation Encore files, we have uh, FBI sources that came out and helped the FBI in their investigation into Saudi intelligence that knew that they were receiving these two men before they even came into the country. Now, my question to you is the catastral document showed without question with the with the Operation Uncle Files without question that there was a concerted effort and illegal, by the way, illegal between the CIA and Saudi intelligence and their surveillance of two Al-Qaeda operatives. Did you manage to read the catastral document? And I'd like to get your thoughts if you did.
1: I, I, I did read the canisterial document. I, I, my my um... Takeaway from that document was I wish I could see some of the some of the source material. I think that um, it's a mind blowing document. And if true, could have major implications, but I haven't seen any of the source documents that he's talking about and all a lot of the witnesses, a lot of the confidential sources, we can kind of, we can kind of, you know, assume who some of them are. Um, but but a lot of them remain secret, and we don't know who they are. And I'm wondering if these if these sources would come forward and corroborate what he has said. I think that's the most that would be the most significant thing, if the confidential sources could then come forward, and work with the families and come public about what they told Canestraro. I think that's number one. Number two, um, you know, a lot of people have, have theorized for a long time that the CIA and the kingdom of Saudi intelligence were working together on a joint operation to try to stop. Okay. There prevent the terrorist attack. Now you would, you would expect that you would want that. You would want your CIA to be working clandestinely behind the scenes to prevent that. So, um, you know, in the sense that, that the CIA was carrying out a mission on us soil and that being illegal, well, I, I can't weigh in on that. I don't, that that's sort of above my pay grade. There's a theory that the CIA Farm that out to Saudi intelligence. Um, there's a theory that you know um, Omar El bayoumi was a CIA asset, or he was you know he was working for, clearly working for Saudi intelligence. But there's a problem with all of these theories, and the biggest problem is 9/11 happens. And and it, so you can you can say until you're blue in the face, so, oh, you know the CIA was working with uh, Saudi Arabian intelligence to try to infiltrate Al Qaeda or that mm-hmm. they were working together on, on, on a joint intelligence operation. But why does 9-11 happen? They had known for years from that, you know, from that Malaysia phone call, there's a there's a call from a Malaysian phone booth to to the um, King Fahad Mosque, mm-hmm. right, that we all know about. That's a public call, and that was the signal to say, hey, the boys are coming. The brothers are coming to town.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: tells Bayoumi and that tells Stumeri, be ready to receive these people. The CIA knew all of this. They were tracking them in this country before 9-11 happens. The CIA has them go missing. The CIA doesn't say a word to the FBI until August or even September of 2001. Why does that happen? How does that happen? I've never heard a good, I've never heard a good explanation on that.
0: Me neither. And just to add, when I, I did a three-part series on a canisterial document because uh, I was blown away by it, and I, I believe... I name a couple of the people that are in the document because I figured out who they were. Yeah. Um, uh, one being somebody I've interviewed previously was an FBI agent. I won't say mm-hmm. his name, but I will tell you after this recording. Yeah. Um, um, one person in particular now as for publicly coming out. Yeah. Cause we'll need the information coming from that document. Um, you talked about British authorities and. uh ascertaining information from Omar al-Bayoumi, I want to get your thoughts on something. Um, supposedly, what they what they collected from Bayoumi's part, which was a lot, there is 14,000 pages of documents and 20 hours of video of audio interrogations of Omar al-Bayoumi. Now, the 9-11 families subpoenaed the FBI for these records in 2018, adding that only, I think, a fraction was provided by the Bureau, and the rest is under seal, which means that they won't be publicly released unless we get enough pressure to do it. I just you know, want to get your opinion on why don't you think they will release these files in audio?
1: Well, first of all, it's shameful and it's disgraceful that here we are 22 years later, and the very family members who lost loved ones can't have any and all information on, um, about what our U.S. government knows on who killed my dad and who killed someone else's father or someone's husband or someone's wife. It's been 22 years. What are you hiding? Um, why, why can't we have this information? And, you know, some of the excuses you hear are sources and methods. Well, if our CIA and FBI are still using the same sources and methods 22 years later, we got a big problem. I mean, our sources mm. and methods haven't changed since then. You have to remember, in 2001, the iPhone didn't even exist. The world has changed dramatically. So sources and methods is no longer an excuse. Ongoing investigation. Well, if there's been an ongoing investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigations is required by law to update the families. On on where they stand with this investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation officially closed Encore before they gave us all these documents in 2021. So, ongoing investigation is no longer an excuse. And to top it all off, we have a presidential executive order from President Biden saying that all the information needs to be declassified to the greatest extent possible. So, all three of those things, you know, just 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 for starters. Just goes to show you that they're hiding something. Something is funny. Something is not right. Despite all of those three examples I've just laid out, we still continue to get pushback. We'll never get CIA documents. And, and you know, the FBI still continues to pr- produce to us documents that are 50, 60 percent um, uh, still 50 to 60 percent. Um, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, are still not complete documents, right? right? So, um, I don't know that we'll ever get them, but we're going to fight it. Uh, we are going to continue to fight in court to get this information unsealed, to get this information out to the American public. It is most important that, that the families get it, but I think it's also important that the American public gets it and they understand we have a true accounting of, of what our FBI knows happened prior to nine eleven.
0: In response to the attacks, we had two congressional inquiries that were incomplete. We've had the invasion of Afghanistan, the longest war in U.S. history. We've had the invasion of Iraq, which had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11. We've had drone strikes on countries such as Pakistan, Libya, Syria, invasion of these countries. But what we didn't have was a full investigation or a full accountability or responsibility for the countries in which the hijackers originated from and lent their ideology to them from. And also foreign intelligence agencies uh, that were involved inside the United States that were following these uh, al-Qaeda operatives, such as Saudi Arabia and Israel. On top of that, you have domestic agencies like the CIA and the, the one agency nobody talks about, the NSA, that were listening to the phone calls of bin Laden in the early 90s. And also an Al Qaeda communications hub in Yemen—a wash with information. I mean, we're talking about enormous amounts of data, and none of this is conspiracy. What, what we, what I just laid out here is a fact. Yet, as you've said throughout the, this interview, there has been this huge shield surrounding the information regarding the intelligence services, foreign and domestic, for reasons other than. The United States being allied to these countries and showing loyalty. Uh, my question to you, uh, Brett, would be: Obviously, these this is basically just a tragedy on the U.S.'s part. Would this not be a correct determination on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that obviously the biggest tragedy is that nine eleven happened and yet nearly three thousand Americans die. But I think the second part of that, which is you know, not not as bad, but it's almost just as bad is the government's uh, willingness to bury their head in the sands when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Is the government um, blocking the 9-11 families for foreclosing for justice for us? Look, this country was built upon the ideals of, of liberty and justice and freedom. Justice is one of the pillars of our democracy. It's one of the pillars of, of, of America. And our own government is foreclosing justice on us because they're keeping information secret and classified, which breeds conspiracy theories. It does not allow the families to have closure and it perpetuates our harm, It perpet- perpetuates our pain and suffering. So you're right. You know, 9-11, that's the main tragedy. But the collateral damage here, almost just as bad as 9-11 itself, is the fact that the U.S. government has um, um, really gone to war against the 9-11 families for allowing us, um, for not allowing us to have closure, peace, and justice. Um, and then, of course, I won't even get into the war in Iraq. Hmm. But, um, you know, that that is a topic and a story for another day. But, um, but, 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 but I think you're right.
0: You've been active, online activism, street activism. I mean, you've been going to court. You're You're in front of legacy media um you're getting attention but yet the next question is my final question one that is personal for me as well but more personal for you what do you say to people to those that say look we've had two congressional investigations trial that may never happen with the guantanamo 5 and guantanamo bay we've had a cover-up by congress and the intelligence services the odds are stacked against you And for anybody else that wants to investigate the matter, it's 20 years past, 22 years past now. What good is continuing on this quest for justice against all these odds and against time? What do you say to people like that?
1: Well, I think that we owe it to the American people. Um, The American people deserve truth. And accountability. I think we owe it more importantly to our family members that died, um, to the people that asked that question. I would ask them. So, I would ask themselves um, to put to put themselves in our position, to put themselves in our shoes. And if they had a husband or a wife ripped away, you know, their love of their life ripped away from them, left to raise a family of three kids by themselves. If they've had a father ripped away or a parent. Um, or if a parent, rather, had 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 their firstborn son torn from them, tragedy, they would do the same thing. I mean, this is an obvious uh, course of action for us. We will not rest until we get to the bottom of this, until we find out uh, who it was, until we know all the information, until we can have publicly all the information that our own government has. We know the information exists because we've seen it in classified and redacted form. So we will keep fighting because our loved ones deserve it. And I think anybody asking those questions would do exactly the same thing. The American people deserve it. Our democracy deserves it. This is too important of an issue just to walk away from because it's a little tough. And you know, you pointed to two congressional inquiries, but what, else, but I, what I wanna highlight is that the 9-11 Commission Report came out in 2004. Operation Encore didn't start until 2006. So Encore starts 2 years after the conclusion of the 9/11 commission. That that effectively remedies the 9/11 commission re- report null and void. In in my opinion, that the 9/11 commission members did not have the benefit of knowing what the Operation Encore detectives uncovered. There should be a new 9/11 style commission based on the findings of Encore, based on the decade-long investigation that is Operation Encore. So, yes, we've had two congressional inquiries on this. We've had two congressional investigations, but none of those investigations um uh encompassed what encore uncovered um so uh we've had success too so i don't I don't want it to feel like we're 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 continually to run into a brick wall because we continually break that wall we break down that wall in two thousand and sixteen President Obama against. His better judgment vetoed Jasta. We were shocked that he chose to again. This is our U.S. government. This is our highest levels of our government stepping in to stop us from pursuing the investigation, stop us going down that path of Saudi Arabia. He vetoed Jasta, which 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 was like, yeah, you know, that that was a sucker punch. After all that we had done to get out of committee, to 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 get a vote in the U.S. Uh, Congress to bring it all the way to the finish line, to have a president veto it, that was that was devastating. I think that was one of the harder moments in this fight because we had to go back to the drawing board. We had to start over again. We had to hope that two-third members of the Congress would override him. And what I was so proud of is that the American Congress, which I continue to believe is, is the voice of the people, right? That, that's who we elect to send to Washington. That's who represents us. That's the true representation of the people in what our government is, it's the American Congress. They they made us proud in that moment where they overrode, the Democrats overrode their sitting sitting president 97 to one in the U.S. Senate. And it was a similar margin in the U.S. House of Representatives. And that was the only time President Obama was overridden in all eight years of his office. So it was an unprecedented veto override. Trump invoked state secrets on us that that was a gut punch that was like bringing a nuclear weapon to a knife fight you know over state secrets has never over been turned in civil litigation in fact I don't think it's ever been used in civil litigation so um, there we go you know another devastating setback but fast forward to two years later we had President Biden issue a presidential executive order effectively unwinding that state secrets designation so I don't want it to give the notion that, we continually are beaten or um, blocked, we, we, we fought, we continue to fight, and we're having major success. You know, I can t- I believe that if it wasn't for our persistence and us pursuing this, we wouldn't have the Operation Encore files declassified. We wouldn't know that our FBI said that Bayumi was working for Saudi intelligence. We wouldn't know that Musado Jara, who is... Um, you know was a senior member in the Saudi government reporting to Prince Bandar, we wouldn't know that he was tasking union and Mary to help those um to, to to assist the hijackers. So um uh I think it's been worthwhile and I think it's been a fruitful
0: path that that we've been down. It's just been taking longer than
1: anybody expected or longer than anybody wants.
0: Brett Eagleson, son of the late John Bruce Eagleson, founder and CEO of 9-11 Justice thank you very much for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me.